real, real conversation, conversation and some hard truths. Hard truths. Gangs, Gangs, drugs, drugs and, guns. and guns. Giving a voice to those willing to sacrifice. We have stories that need to be told. We have lessons that need to be taught. Protect and serve. Welcome to The Quiet Professional. And welcome back, everybody. Nathan Romus with you once again. And today we have the, uh, I guess you call him the president of presidents. We have Tom Stamatakis on the podcast. And he is the current president of the Canadian Police Association. A little background on Tom. He's sat on the board of directors for the Canadian Police Association or the CPA since 2003. And he's served as its president since May 2011. He was the former president of the Vancouver Police Union from 1998 to 2019, as well as the immediate past president and founding member of the British Columbia, uh, sorry, British Columbia Police Association from 2008 to 2019. In 2022, he was acclaimed for a third term as president of the International Council of Police Representative Associations. He's been a constable with the Vancouver Police Department for approximately 30 years and had a variety of assignments over that time. And he currently, uh, he also sits on the boards for Covington Capital, Odd Squad Production Society, as well as several uh, federal and provincial advisory boards and committees. He's got extensive knowledge and experience in a number of areas, including strategic crisis communications and advocacy, disciplinary matters, collective bargaining, negotiations, conflict resolution, benefit, uh, benefit administration, pensions, and governance. So he's been around um, 2017. He was promoted to the Officer of the Order of Merit of the Police Forces in Canada. So been a busy guy, lots of work. Welcome, Tom. Thanks for having me on. So let's start at the beginning and Tell us, how did you get involved in all of this stuff? Um, by accident, basically. <laughs> yeah. I, um, uh, yeah, I got involved in um, policing and my career started in, in uh, I got recruited in about 1989 and I started in, with the BPD in, in January of uh, 1990. Uh, uh, policing is not something that I probably planned on getting involved with. I, I just ended up meeting uh, police officers from Vancouver uh, before I got into policing in Vancouver and uh, through sports and different other activities. They, they um, really promoted policing as a career. Uh, at the time, I was working in the hospitality industry uh, um, in the hotel business for a small company running a number of properties. You know, working a lot, um, and they made policing sound attractive. So I thought I'd give it a try, and uh, and then I, I, like I said, I started in 1990, and and uh, you know, all of a sudden, it's 30 years later, and um, been very busy and learned a lot, and have enjoyed my experience. Um, I'm not kidding when I say by accident. I don't think anybody gets involved in a policing career to become a full time uh, association representative or an advocate for uh, police personnel the way I have over a long period of time. Uh, and, you know, when I was in my policing career, it was the same as, you know, many other people who get involved in policing. I, I was predominantly an operational cop. I uh, was involved in a number of different activities, including, you know, with our emergency response team, um, public safety uh, unit. Uh, my last uh, job or assignment was in our training section as a force options instructor, uh, firearms instructor. So, you know, I was just doing the kinds of things that most people typically do in their policing careers. I, I did, um, you know, I was, I was fairly active in the sense that I attended, you know, our union meetings and kept up to speed on what some of the issues were. And again, through relationships, a uh, couple of the uh, board members at the time at the Vancouver Police Union, you know, encouraged me to run for a vacancy, and I did. And then that turned into uh, becoming the president of the police union and, and effectively staying there for a long period of time. And, and 
it, it really wasn't by design. It was just a question of, you know, it just seemed like every time I thought of leaving the union or the association to get back into my policing career, there'd be another round of collective bargaining uh, or some other controversial issue involving a number of members. And I, you know, I seem to always think, oh, I'll just deal with this next round of collective bargaining or I'll deal with this next contentious issue. And then once that's done, I'll go back to my policing career. And then, you know, next thing you know, it's quite a few years later and you get pretty invested and, 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 and I just, I just never managed to, to do that, I guess. So that's, that gives you a bit of a, you know, a bit of the context around why I've ended up in, in these different roles. I mean, I can talk about the different roles if you like, and, um, but I'll, I'll turn it over to you with any other questions. Well, one thing I always, uh, find interesting to talk about too is so you said you started in january 1990 with uh the vancouver police so only a couple years after the charter of rights comes into effect was what was kind of the impact or did you did you see any impact at that time i know you're brand new but um you know was it fully implemented do you find it's been a i guess a real work in progress over what we'll see now like the last you know, a couple decades, but um, at that time, what was policing like compared to today? Yeah, so so uh, you know, I what I always say to people is, um, you know, policing is, is, and certainly over my thirty-year career, not just as a police officer, but as someone who's you know been an advocate for police personnel uh, and very involved, you know, in terms of. The, the policy side, lots of ad- advocacy around uh, different types of legislation, including uh, legislation that's been created over that 30-year period um, around the o- oversight of policing. You know, policing is you know it's constantly evolving, and and um, and it seems like it there's not a time when there isn't something that's driving change. Now, typically in policing, that change comes from uh, feedback from the community, uh, and that can come in different forms. Sometimes it's, you know, we have an incident where there's a negative outcome. Somebody's either seriously injured or or dies after an interaction with the police. Even though there are often many other underlying factors that lead to that kind of negative interaction, mm-hmm. you know, because because we're we sort of deal with people at the end, typically when they're in crises and um, you know, we're very identifiable because we, rep, you know, we represent uh, these large institutions and communities. We wear uniforms. Uh, you know, the focus often ends up being on policing, but it, you know, those kinds of things drive change. So, you, you know, over the last 30 years, we've seen a lot more oversight uh, around policing, particularly, you know, this move to independent civilian-led oversight, whether it's with respect to complaints or whether it's with respect to investigations of, of incidents where, you know, like I said, a serious injury or death results. Mm-hmm. There, there's also often, so, you know, the community drives change, uh, elected officials then enact uh, different uh, pieces of legislation that affect how policing uh, occurs in a community. Uh, you know, different levels of court obviously make decisions. Uh, ultimately, the Supreme Court will often make decisions that drive change in police practice, whether it's around, uh, you know, things like, you know, Feeney and, and, and the requirements today when it comes to entering um, a premise compared to when I first started. Um, Stinchcomb disclosure rules today compared to when I first started. Um, you know, um, other other Supreme Court decisions that affect how we search people and, and on and on. So there's been a lot of change. But going back to how, your, you know, how you started the question in terms of the charter, the reality is I started my policing career you know, post-charter and, and I never knew anything different. Mm-hmm. I, I do remember you know, the, the police officers that were around a lot longer than I was at the time complaining about it and... <laughs> Talking about how you know policing changed and you know it's going to be way worse and you don't know what you're getting into, but you know today, uh, you know if you look at 
police services across the country, it's the same kind of conversation. Someone that's been in policing for 30 years and experienced a lot of these changes will probably have the same sort of concerns and criticisms. But new people coming in don't know any different. They're coming into that environment. So what I say to people all the time is, you know, for new people, and I still get this feedback all the time when I talk to brand new recruits or people who are just starting out in policing, you know, for them, it's exciting. It's a new career. Um, it's In some cases, it's something that they've always aspired to do. In other cases, they've fallen into policing the, the same way I did. Um, you know, they've met people or it's something that was brought to their attention and it seemed like a interesting career. So new people, you know, they think it's exciting. It's new to them. The, the, the legislative framework that they're operating in is, is, is also new to them. It hasn't changed. Uh, so they don't have the same sort of concerns that someone that's been around 20 or 30 years that's experienced a lot of change and in some cases change that's been very positive, but in other cases change that in many ways has been, you know, some would say is negative and made it much more challenging for police officers to be effective in how they do their work and um, uh, to be effective in terms of how they're proactively dealing with, you know, public safety or crime issues in communities. Uh, and, and of course we get lots of feedback from the community when, when they don't think we're being effective. So, uh, you know, and I still, you know, 32 years later, I still, you know, I, I think it's been a great career. I, I enjoy uh, doing what I do and, and I get a lot of, uh, uh, energy and, and sort of positive, um, uh, you know, my positive outlook, outlook is, continues to be refreshed by by the new people that start and and their enthusiasm um so i think that's a good thing and um you know there's again it's there's challenges with change but at the same time you know there's lots of great aspects to our career in terms of you know the different opportunities that people get in a policing career you know you can stay with the same employer and have different assignments every two three five years or or you know whatever uh, however your career progresses and there's not a lot of um, professions or, or other industries where where you can do that where you can have that kind of change and constant opportunities for learning and training and you know acquiring new skills uh, so I think those are some of the positives now we also have a lot of challenges of course mm -hmm. because of the nature of the, work, the trauma that people are exposed to you know um, and, and those kinds of things but um, but, you know, but I think every generation of new police officer, you know, they come in enthusiastic. It's an exciting career. And then things happen that that change the environment. And, and that can have sometimes a negative effect. Well, yeah. And, you know, kind of going to your point about uh, when you got in and the, the more experienced members who've been on pre-charter, um, I think even the same might apply today where it's you say to those members, uh, you know, don't complain for just complain about change for the sake of complaining because it's kind of a lazy argument it's um make i'd say the the goal would be for them to make sure they we aren't repeating the same mistakes so you're there as the experienced person how about say hey we've been here before we don't want to do this again and here's the reasons why and have an example uh and better yet a solution so and i try to say that to people when i deal with them is you know, you can, you're well within your right to complain about something, but if you're not really offering um, a solution or helping out in some way, then what are you really doing? You know, um, and on that, I guess, is there any specific point or couple things that drove you into the advocacy side of things? Is there like a, a certain event or culmination of events that you know, made you such a, a staunch supporter of police and want to go down this route that you're on? Um, yeah, I, I don't know. That's an interesting question. I, I, so I totally agree with what you're saying. I mean, I, I, I think, you know, I've always sort of taken the approach that if, if you don't like something or if you, you know, you know, what's the solution or what's, how can you approach it so that you can get to a better outcome? And, so I, I completely agree with that. And the other thing to remember is often, you know, a lot of these changes that that seem to get imposed on on policing, you know, they're changes that 
have resulted from something that we haven't done very well, whether it's an individual officer that's done something that's had a ripple effect or whether it's, it's policing generally that has um, taken an approach to an issue, whether it's a law enforcement issue or some other kind of community or public safety issue that that communities turned around and said, no, we don't like that approach, so we want you to change. So I, I think that's always important to keep in mind. Like a lot of these changes that we feel are being imposed on us are really happening because of things we've done. It's not, you know, many of them don't just come out of the blue. Mm-hmm. And, and there's always lots of room to debate. In terms of why, I mean, I, I, I guess when I first started, like I said, I was always engaged in, in with, the association with the union, I, I sort of kept up to speed in terms of what the issues were. Um, um, I was just generally interested. I, I think when I start, when I look at, you know, some of the, you know, the equipment and health and safety issues when I first started and how much attention was being paid to those issues, clearly not enough. Uh, you know, we've made some real gains. And I know while I was president of our uh, local union or association in Vancouver, you know, tremendous improvements around equipment, right from things like, you know, footwear to uniforms to uh, to uh, protective vests to, you know, gun belts and, you know, like, so, so just to me, I just, enjoy, I just enjoyed sort of advocating on behalf of, of our members and trying to um, be part of achieving some of those improvements and, and gains. And, and it just seemed like there was never any end to the kinds of issues that we could address. So, and I and I felt like um, I guess why I stayed engaged in the advocacy work longer than most people typically would is because I just didn't never felt like um, it felt like you know somebody needed to be there advocating for those things. Otherwise, they weren't going to get done and. And I, and then ultimately, I, I think I decided that I had a lot more influence and ability to influence outcomes in 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 this role, or at the time, and as the president of the local association, than I would have had I gone back to my policing career and sort of just become another cog in the wheel, you know, and and trying to, you know, work through some of the bureaucracy that exists in our organizations, particularly larger organizations like, you know, you guys in Edmonton, Vancouver, you know, the major city mm-hmm. police service, you just end up being another person that's, that's trying to get attention within that hierarchy that we all have that can be quite administratively dense. And I, I found in my role as, as president of the, as the, of the police union, you know, I could, I could cut through all that. And if I, you know, if I wanted to advocate for something, I could go directly to the leadership team of the organization. And then later on, you know, as I got my feet under me in terms of, uh, and there's a lot of history around how it all happened, but um, for a variety of reasons, I ended up getting quite involved advocating on behalf of our members and, and policing, you know, locally at the local level with our local council and police board. And then ultimately that turned into, you know, advocacy provincially around some of the bigger issues and some of the legislative changes that we're having that were happening provincially. And then that evolved into sort of the more national uh, role that I'm in now. So I, I guess if there was one thing that was probably it is that you could get to, you know, leadership team of your service, you could get to key elected officials, you could get to, uh, you know, at every level of government and, and hopefully have some kind of positive influence on what was happening in terms of how it was going to affect, uh, you know, frontline. And, and my focus was always around, you know, how is it going to affect uh, frontline police personnel? And because my, my operational experience was, was operational, I, I, I worked, uh, you know, I always worked on the road and shift work, took on other stuff in addition to that. Uh, you know, I was trying to look at things from the lens of the person that is working shift work, that's dealing with, you know, managing, you know, the radio calls mm-hmm. and on the weekends and at three o'clock in the morning you said you're going to night shift tonight so i always try and think of you know what's that person going to think or what's important to that person because uh, to me i think that's the toughest job is 
that's the job in policing that's the most demanding in my view and you know where where people have the least control over their workload um and and the least control over their schedules and I, and i and i realize there are many other difficult challenging jobs in policing including you know our follow-up investigators whatever section they're working in i'm not saying that those those positions aren't demanding but you know as a as a detective and a do in a detective office you know i still have a lot more control over my my work um even though it might be overwhelming in terms of the number of files I'm carrying, I have a lot more control over that work than someone that's, you know, responding to dispatch calls uh, over the radio, right? So, Yeah. And I think uh, an important part of what you're saying there too is uh, finding people that are motivated or want to get into those places where they can uh, kind of see a positive change and have an effect on the greater uh membership right um and definitely an advocate for the front lines is always needed um because we don't always get that from say from management uh within the organization and then sometimes depending on things like city council provincial or federal governments uh, a lot of people that have a lot of different influences on the membership whether it's through legislation or right down to making decisions about equipment um we need as many advocates as possible so it's uh yeah and i think so the challenge in policing is um you know unlike other sectors you know i don't think anybody becomes a police officer to be an advocate um in the sense that you know i don't think we don't recruit police officers to come into our organizations and you know most of those, most of our new recruits don't have as one of their goals that they're aspiring to, to become an advocate for other frontline uh, police personnel or to get involved with the association or the union. Mm-hmm. That's just not, you know, part of our DNA as a culture. Typically people get into policing because they want to be police officers. They want to, they want to, you know, they want to either make a difference in the community through their police work or they want to, you know, fight crime or whatever the motivation is, you know, like if you ask new recruits, you know, what about the association? Most would say, well, I don't even know what that is. What do you mean by that? You know, so that's one challenge that we have. We're unlike other sectors that are a bit more mature from a industrial relations perspective where, you know, becoming involved with the union becomes more of a, a, a career plan or a career choice. So that's one issue. The other thing I'll say is, yeah, and part of that is because, although it doesn't seem like it at the time, like most of our people who, who get into those, whether they're supervisory management or leadership positions, they're also police officers too. And, and so there's a lot of alignment in terms of, you know, goals and objectives. I think what happens sometimes is, you know, when, as you move up through an organization, you get a little bit disconnected. And if you're not, you know, looking at things through the, the, the right lens, it might seem like, you know, well, that manager or that inspector or that superintendent or that deputy chief doesn't have the interest of the members in mind. But I, my experience is generally speaking, most people are trying to do the, the right thing. It's mm-hmm. the problem is sometimes, they sometimes lose their way, right? Um, because they get too mired in the politics of an organization or their own agenda or, and, and forget, you know, what their role is and what their obligations are when they take on those supervisory managerial or leadership responsibilities. And, and a, in my view, a big part of those responsibilities are to take care of your people. Um, uh, and, that, you know, that's the job of the association and the union to remind them of that and push them in that direction. But yeah, you're right. Where it gets a little bit more challenging is once you move outside of the police organization and you start to get these, um, you know, whether it's uh, different levels of government and and other outside um, uh, groups that can have a huge influence in some of the change that happens that can have a significant impact on policing. And that's where I think you do need strong advocacy. And it has to come not just from the association, but it also has to come from the police organization. And I think we're still, in Canada at least, 
trying to find our way. We've we've historically relied so much on, um, you know, our our um, you know our history and 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 and, and how uh, policing has been perceived historically, uh, and you know, and I would say that all changed quite dramatically, sort of in the in the late two thousands with the global financial crisis, where you know for the first time. You know, governments were challenged in terms of revenues and policing. That's probably the first time that I recall where policing came under so much scrutiny uh, with respect to costs and budgets and those kinds of things. And that's just something that we weren't ever used to. I mean, it wasn't that long ago where a chief could go into a council meeting and say, you know, I need this many more resources. And most councils would go, okay, well, if the chief is saying that that's the case, then let's do that. But I think that environment's changed quite dramatically. So, you know, we have to find ways to manage through that and 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 that's where the advocacy becomes uh, critically important yeah and uh i don't know how the exact saying goes but i guess it's was it like you're you're the average of your the five friends you have so maybe if you know when we talk about the 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 chief or deputy chiefs and if they're always in meetings with council or or advocate groups of whatever kind um you know you start to maybe identify more with them or, and it's not necessarily an us versus them thing, but if you're with the police service, you have your people that you're representing. And yeah, sometimes I guess maybe you can lose sight of maybe the front line or how things are really going uh, at the ground level because you're operating from such a high view. And then, you know, you're not having those daily connections. You're more, more talking with, uh, people from outside who have seen things from a different uh, perspective, but not necessarily the most, uh, say, educated perspective. So, yeah, it's definitely a challenge. Well, the challenge is we, in policing, you know, like, again, because of our um, hierarchical structure, you know, sort of a influenced a lot by, you know, military um, rank structures and, and what have you. I really think that that's, uh, allowed us not to pay enough attention to, you know, things like succession planning, mm-hmm. uh, uh, the right kind of uh, um, decisions with respect to who we put in leadership positions, making sure that they have the right kind of training and and um, and support, mm-hmm. and and so you know we've 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 for the most part succession and planning happens in a fairly haphazard um, um, way. And it really depends a lot on each organization and who, you know, who's, who happens to be in charge of that organization at a particular time and what kind of effort they're putting into doing those kinds of things. So, you know, we typically promote uh, cops who, in some cases, you know, you, you know, you could be a great B cop, so we're going to make you a supervisor. You might have been a really good supervisor managing a team of eight, 10, or 12 people. Then we're going to make you a manager. But each of those different uh, levels of responsibility have different things that go along with them. We don't often prepare people really well uh, for that. And then, you know, because of the, you know what you, you alluded to, sometimes if you surround yourself also with people that agree with you all the time or you create an environment where you're not, um, you know, having a different perspective or disagreeing or challenging is seen as a negative, mm-hmm. uh, then, you, then that really gets you in trouble because you don't have somebody asking those tough questions to make sure that, you know, your leadership decisions are the right decisions to make sure that your, the strategies you're developing are fully informed and take into account. Um, you know, the, the appropriate kinds of uh, issues. And then the other big thing I see in policing is, you know, because cops are really good at managing crises, because that's what we do, if you if you think about it, in terms of, you know, your job as a patrol officer or working patrol, whether you're, you're a constable or a sergeant or a corporal, you know, you're, you're going from call to call to call, trying to put a lid on those calls as you get them. You're not really, you don't have the time or capacity to actually solve the problems. What's what are the underlying issues that are that are driving that call? We just we deal with crises. So what happens is, you know, if that's what you know and what you're good at, 
as you move in through a, an organizational hierarchy, you just keep doing that. And and in policing, the problem, one of the underlying problems or or, or factors that that's leading to some of the challenges we're facing today is that we keep saying we keep trying to deal with the crisis, so we keep saying okay to everything. And I think you fall into a trap sometimes when you're in the leadership positions where you are dealing with all these competing demands and lots of demands from the community, particularly now where, you know, we've got lots of, you know, there's there's lots of ways for people to express dissatisfaction around policing, whether it's social media platforms or how mainstream media are, are reporting. Like anybody can be a critic or an activist. Um, it's easy to fall into the trap of just trying to appease those people. So if you're not balancing, you know, who your different audiences are, and if you're not prioritizing your internal audience, which are your people, and making sure that you're you're fulfilling your responsibilities to your people in terms of, you know, making sure that they're healthy and safe, properly resourced, those kinds of things, then that's where the disconnect comes often, and that's where you see, you can often see conflict in organizations where, you know, the people that are actually doing the work are feeling disenfranchised because mm-hmm. their leadership team's not communicating properly or they don't feel supported or all of those kinds of things. And I, I think that's where there's a lot of work that needs to be done. And, and you know, the, the, um, and it's, you know, our environment has changed. Like we, in the early 2000s, we saw provincial governments uh, um, across the country you know, make decisions around deinstitutionalizing people's mental health issues. We've seen a real shift in focus when it comes to how we respond to substance use issues. Um, and at the same time, you know, we've seen a reduction in uh, the federal government's uh, um, investment in healthcare across the country in terms of supporting provinces. There have been cuts to many other services. All of that, the effect of all of that is is led to all this downloading where, you know, because the police are still one of the few agencies out there that are available 24-7, yeah. you know, we've become a catch-all for everything. So now, you know, maybe, you know, in when I started in the 90s and, and before that, you were, you were predominantly dealing with more traditional crime issues, whereas now we're dealing with not just the crime issues, which are growing, but also all these social issues that, that if we don't deal with them can lead to disorder and crime. So then therefore we're stuck, you know, managing, you know, people, mental health crises in our communities, people with serious use issues in our communities, which then lead to, you know, them getting involved in crime or, or being hard to house or all of those kinds of things. And we're, you know, we're just not getting the support and we, we, we've historically, taking all that on without saying, okay, yeah, we can do that. But if you're going to cut, if you're going to deinstitutionalize, you need to reallocate some of the savings you get from that mm-hmm. to policing. A cut, you know, your services in, in, in whatever your department of social services is called in Alberta, then you need to reallocate some of that funding, et cetera, et cetera. And it's, it's, it's been the opposite, right? So, um, maybe we'll, well, we'll get to some of those kind of narratives. I want to go back maybe a little bit. But what can you explain what the CPA uh, does exactly? So where you kind of fall in the, the greater uh, view, I guess, of all the associations that are out there. So what is the CPA and then what do they do? Sure. So so the Canadian Police Association is really an advocacy organization. So we're an umbrella organization made up of, of predominantly uh, um, municipal and provincial police associations across the country. And what we do on behalf of those organizations is we will um, uh, advocate federally uh, around issues that that our member associations tell us uh, are important to them. So so part of that is, you know, uh, liaising regularly, predominantly with the federal public safety minister, justice, health, around some of these issues that I've mentioned or that we've been discussing. Uh, we we also maintain relationships with other uh, what I would call stakeholder national stakeholder groups. So you know, for example, the Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police, Canadian Association of Police Governance, which you know your police commission in uh, in Edmonton will be a part of. Um, we you know I sit on a number of these. I think you alluded to at the opening. You know, national organizations like Canadian Police Knowledge Network. 
part of their advisory board. So we try and have a relationship with a lot of these um, federal, national organizations that that get involved in whether it's public policy discussions or are, are advocating themselves for legislative change. We try and get involved in those discussions on behalf of frontline police personnel in Canada so that, you know, your own local association can focus on, you know, your local issues dealing with, you know, the typical sort of health and safety, labor management, grievances, collective bargaining locally without having to worry about also having to advocate at the federal level. Um, so that's generally what we do. We, you know, we have, um, you know, collectively probably about 60,000 members across the country, you know, right from some of the smaller organizations uh, to, you know, Toronto, the Toronto Police Association being one of the largest municipal uh, associations to the Ontario Provincial Police Association with, you know, about 10,000 members representing police officers in the province of Ontario. So that gives you sort of a really brief overview of, mm-hmm. of what the organization does. We, we, we will, you know, we do um, uh, polling uh, across the country just to get a sense uh, of how Canadians feel about different policing issues. We share that with our member associations. We'll also often intervene in uh, in, in police cases that are either at uh, the level of uh, of a um, uh, you know, provincial appeal court, or that make it to the Supreme Court, will will intervene on behalf of policing if we think it's a case that's uh, of national significance. Uh, we'll also assist our member associations with, you know, putting together uh, you know policy papers or position papers with, on on issues that affect uh, policing nationally. So a couple of those, for example that are more recent or topical is we put together some guidance mm-hmm. around um, workplace impairment policies, for mm-hmm. example, or, you know, we, we did a paper, um, a, uh, a policy paper around vaccine policies and mm-hmm. how to manage those in your, in your organization as an, as an association advocating for members tried to pull together, you know, the legal context. Um, okay. so, so those are the kinds of activities you get involved in. Yeah. Well, and so maybe we'll get onto some of those uh, topics or narratives. And what are you seeing uh, across the nation? I guess you probably being one of the most and uh, one of the better positions to give a, maybe a national picture of some of these things. Um, but let me know if you're not. Uh, what does recruiting and retention look like across Canada? And is it better or worse in certain areas or is it kind of consistent across uh, the nation? So federally at the moment, I would say, you know, sort of the top three issues that we're spending a lot of time on uh, are are recruiting or retention is one of them, and these are in no particular order. Um, It is a challenge uh, across the country. I think it is, uh, it can be a little bit different um, depending on what part of the country we're in, you know, there Canada is such a large country and there are, you know, regional differences and differences with respect to how, you know, the different regions or provinces are doing economically. But 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 recruiting is a challenge right across Canada. Uh, and it's particularly a challenge for the larger organizations that are trying to fill, um, you know, more, more positions and also trying to manage uh, an ever increasing uh, workload or more demands on police services, and you know I think there are a number of reasons for that. But you know, if you look at um, you know some of the the conversation around policing that's happened over the last couple of years, particularly since uh, George Floyd in Minneapolis, and how that you know the the, the fallout from that incident spilled over into Canada. Uh, it's a really challenging environment. Um, you, you know, we're asking people in a very competitive labor environment where we have pretty high standards with respect to who we think is suitable to get involved in policing. You know, we're, we're asking them to come into a profession where we're saying, look, you know, we're going to pay you uh, what X number of X salary, which is 
not, you know, much more than uh, you could you could find in other sectors. And and we're going to expose you to a whole bunch of trauma and make your work shift work mm-hmm. and weekends miss family events or events with your friends. And so those people we're trying to recruit have other options where they can go get you know the same or even a bit less of a salary, but but not have to work shift work and not have to work weekends and not have to deal with uh, uh, being exposed uh, to trauma at a significantly higher rate than than most most Canadians will ever be exposed to over their lifetime. We yeah. we expose a lot of members to more trauma in a day sometimes than most people will experience over the course of their entire life. So. So recruiting retention is a significant challenge. We're having conversations around the country about, you know, what can we do about it? I think there are some things we can do. We can, we can, we need to update our recruiting strategies to better reflect the kind of people that we're, we're uh, trying to recruit and what their priorities are as opposed to recruiting based on what our priorities are. I think we need to make some changes to our organizational cultures that better support Uh, again, the kind of people we're trying to recruit and their values. And we need to get past, um, you know, our historical attitude when it comes to people coming into our organizations where, you know, we're kind of doing them a favor, bringing them in as opposed to, hey, you know, actually we need them to come in and we need to be more responsive to what their, what their values are and what their priorities are. So I think that's, that's going to take some work and it's going to probably take some time, but it's, it's something that we need to address because the, the conversation that's happened over the last two years, like why the hell would anybody want to get involved in policing when everything you do it occurs in a fishbowl uh, and now there's all these different platforms where anybody can jump in mm-hmm. and, and criticize and second guess what you've done. And typically what you do happens in very dynamic circumstances very quickly you know, you don't have the option to take a time out and consult a playbook or get some advice. These things happen quickly and people have to make decisions quickly. And then everybody then spends, you know, a year, two years or however many years after the fact criticizing and second guessing. So, um, it, you know, it's it's challenging to, 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 to say to people, look, come into that environment and it's going to be great. You're going to enjoy it. Now, you know, we offer things that I think are appealing to people, but I, uh, it, it's a challenge. And, and so that, you know, the next piece is the whole mental health and wellness piece. Uh, and how do we um, do better with respect to that? And, and there's some real challenges there, which I'm happy to talk about. And, you know, the third piece uh, that we're really focused on right now is, uh, and again, it's it's something that's really come become more acute over the last couple of years is just just how more frequently people are protesting around any number of things. And often the things that people protest about have nothing to do with police and, and anything the police service has done. It's got to do with, you know, whether it's government policy or global issues or the environment, climate change. And, and, you know, our members are often stuck in the middle of that. And, and there's some real implications that we're trying to look at and identify so that we can advocate around them. But one is, in most cities, and particularly in smaller communities across the country, you know, our police officers who are policing these protests are doing it in addition to their regular uh, duties or their regular responsibilities. So there's a the whole issue of fatigue and, and burning people out. The second thing is often, you know, you're policing protests where some of the protesters are becoming quite, you know, violent and, and angry. And ironically, in many cases, our members probably sympathize with the protesters and what they're protesting about, but we're in the middle and I think we're being let down a little bit by some of our elected officials in terms of some of the comments they make yeah. or, 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 or their responses to protesters and their, their willingness to allow um, some of the protests to happen without considering the implications for the police personnel that ultimately have to deal with them. So that's a, that's sort of a third priority issue, if you want to call that, for us nationally and, and trying to advocate for for the federal government to take a bit more of a leadership role in terms of... Um, the narratives uh, that they put out there. Yeah. Well, the narrative, but also creating some kind of a framework where there's 
you know, if, if you know, people understand, including the public, what the what have a better understanding of what to expect when they engage in protests, particularly when they're violent, um, and and to get away from this idea that uh, you know they can do outrageous things at protests and then you know cry foul when the police do actually intervene. Like we need to we need to establish some kind of a line where okay, if you if you protest peacefully, then that's great. You know, no problem. We'll show up and make sure that the traffic is mm-hmm. can still move and people are safe. But as soon as, in my view, as soon as people cross that line and start to get violent and disruptive and, and do things that have a significant impact on people or the economy or whatever, then I think governments need to get serious about it and say, we're not going to tolerate that. And here's what's going to happen. I was going to say, I think a lot of what we have right now uh, is just everything is seen as a political opportunity. And I mean, it's it's almost like uh, the people calling those shots, so we talk about the federal government, they're not afraid to say one thing one week and then the next week say the complete opposite. They're not afraid of people calling them out. It's almost like you can just say whatever you want now and uh, either it just doesn't get played into the media or they just don't care and they can say whatever they want and people are buying into it and it's, it's a very strange environment where people are not taking any time to step back and say, what am I actually even doing here? What am I protesting or what am I supporting? Um, And I think that goes a lot into like talking about some of the narratives because all these will affect the, the three things that you're talking about between recruiting, retention, mental health and wellness, and uh, the public protests about just everything in general. But we're constantly, you know, being told we're, militarize yeah. uh we're just trying to scare people that we're systemically racist and everything has to be about diversion uh, diversity inclusion equity so it's like well how about we just first and foremost work on our core function and we're here to protect the public and go from that not just automatically buy into every single narrative that's out there yeah, well, I, I think these issues do spill over and they're all related and, and one affects the other for sure. Uh, I, I really believe that one of the challenges in the current environment has been a lack of leadership from our elected officials at every level mm-hmm. and in, in many cases from from uh, police leadership uh, um, in terms of how they've responded to some of these uh, narratives, um, which in my view, uh, was not thoughtful and also didn't reflect the the reality of uh, how policing has evolved in Canada in terms of, you know, trying to address uh, things like, you know, taking a law enforcement approach when it's appropriate to take a law enforcement approach, but taking a different approach uh, around other issues where uh, a law enforcement or a criminal justice approach is not the right approach in terms of the broader community safety piece. How we evolved when it comes to, you know, the kind of training we provide to police officers today versus, you know, the kind of training that might have been provided, you know, many, many years ago when some of our, um, you know, policies and procedures were um, discriminatory in terms of how we responded to different groups within our communities. So for example, you know, it wasn't, I mean, in in Vancouver in the sixties, we had, uh, you know, the approach, you know, we were arresting in policing, we were arresting gay people, for example, uh, which today we would say, well, it's not appropriate to do that. So, um, you know, there's been a lot of changes and and what was unfortunate in my view, particularly over the last couple of years, and that's why I say, I think policing has been unnecessarily politicized is, you know, no one, you know, when, when people were raising issues around, um, you know, whether it's defunding or systemic racism or criticizing the police in some other way, nobody stood up to say, okay, yeah, look, we're not perfect. And we continue to need, you know, we need to continue to, to learn and evolve and get better. And if there are groups within our community that are saying they're not happy with how their, their interactions with the police are happening, we have to listen to them. But at the same time, people in leadership positions and our elected officials who represent um, 
you know, institutions like policing needed to step up and say, and by the way, here are the things that we're doing. Here's, here's how we are changing. Here's how we are trying to be responsive mm-hmm. to demands from the community. And nobody did that. So then it just allowed this, you know, really uninformed rhetoric to take root. Uh, and, and so we've been spending, I know I've been spending a ton of my time over the last couple of years trying to push back on that and trying to better inform the, uh, the narrative with, with, you know, the reality of policing in Canada. And, you know, I can talk forever about it, but the fact is, you know, police officers in Canada respond to about 13 million calls for service every year. Most of those calls are resolved. No one ever hears about them. There's no fanfare. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we do a good job. Um, We, we, all the available research in Canada or the data that's available, and it's an area that needs more study, but we, the data tells us that we only ever use force less than 1% of the time. And even within that 1% of those calls where we do use force, the vast majority of those times, it's, it's a very low level uh, use of force. So basically it's maybe, you know, a hand on the shoulder or a hand on the elbow to try and escort somebody some handcuffing, which I'm not trying to minimize the impact of someone being handcuffed, but it's not, it's not the high-level use of force that some people would have you believe that this, this what I would call the uninformed uh, rhetoric um, would imply. Um, and the other thing that I always try and point out to people, um, you know, if you Canada is a large country, you know, it's 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 over 10 million square kilometers. We have about 70,000 police officers that police this country. Uh, you know, population of, uh, I think it's about 35 million people now. You know, like, we do a good job in the context of what the expectations are. And if people want to do, you know, if they want uh, to make changes, then then they need to think about how to make those changes. And what I, the other thing I say to people, and and it drives me uh, crazy because, you know, it's the poor constable or the officer's, that often get criticized in the aftermath of having to deal with a mental health, you know, an individual in a mental health crisis where it goes sideways or some other call. But at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's the elected officials that create the legislation that create the standards under which we operate. They're the, it's the elected officials that approve the equipment we use that approve the, 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 the policies that inform how we investigate missing persons that inform how we investigate criminal offenses. And it's, it's our police chiefs and, and organizations that make the decisions around who to recruit and how, mm-hmm. how to train and coach and mentor our new recruits, how to supervise, how to manage. And what I see far too often is, you know, when, when we get to these controversial incidents or negative outcomes, the focus ends up being on the poor cop that happened to respond to that call on that day. And, and no one looks at, you know, all of these other things that I, that I just described that I say you should look at if you want to get to changing something or doing something better. And, and that doesn't happen often enough. Well, and you're, you're active on Twitter when it comes to the use of force. I've seen quite a few of your articles lately talking about, cause it, the, you know, the, whether it's CBC has, um, there's uh, one tweet I'm looking at right now that you responded to. It was an article CBC put out just saying that the Peel police use force on black people 3.2 times more than their share of the population. Your response was need to look at the why or context. Without that, it's just a counting exercise. Right. And we need more of that, but we also need more of, uh, like, like you're saying, the politicians to say that, but also, who's calling us the most and who is victimized the most. And I've, ha- I've said this in previous podcasts, like we're in certain neighborhoods because those people call us the most. And then it gets into a further conversation about bail reform. And we're just putting people back in their communities to reoffend. Well, now that just jacks up the numbers for the same groups of people that we're arresting or dealing with the most. But a lot of the victims are getting left behind uh, in this political kind of ring we're in here yeah no 100 percent. i mean you got to look at the context like 
you know, what were these people doing when, when they interacted with the police? Because if, like you said, if the demographics in a particular neighborhood suggest that it's a predominantly black or a predominantly indigenous uh, neighborhood, then the odds are, yeah, you're going to interact with black people more often in that neighborhood and same with indigenous people. And I have no issue with examining those interactions. And in fact, we should, mm-hmm. uh, and we should collect good data around, you know, who's doing what in our country and why are they coming into more contact with the police? But it, if, if you don't include the context, then I think, I don't think it gives you a complete picture. And I think it's, uh, you know, that, that then leads to this, you know, some of the rhetoric that we've been talking about and, and it's not productive like this, you know, all of this, the other frustration is all of this, you know, none of this should be an either or, or us versus them. This should, this should be about, okay, how do we, like I said before, if people are saying they're concerned about how the police are interacting with them in their neighborhoods or in their communities, then okay. So how do we have that conversation and find a way to do it better? Right. Um, what I'm seeing is, you know, people with an agenda making it a us versus them or an either or, and I don't think that's productive. Like we should be trying to find ways uh, to collaborate better, to build relationships, not to tear each other down or, um, you know, pit one group against another, which it seems like there's just too many people that are interested in that. And I think our elected officials who have a responsibility to do better are, are letting us down uh, in many cases. and, And that has to change. And, you know, I was just in, uh, I was just going to give one, I was in Saskatchewan um, uh, last week at a, at a, a Canadian Association Police, Police Governance um, um, meeting. And of course, in, it's in the aftermath of the tragedy that happened in that province, which was obviously on everybody's mind for, for a lot of reasons. But I mean, it, it, just to give you one example of, in terms of the policing and some of the challenges. Um, you know, I, I before that I, I had the opportunity to meet with uh, the chief constable of the uh, Scottish Police Service, uh, which is a and and the reason why I'm bringing this up is because a lot of people always look at these other countries and go, oh look, let's let's bring this in from the UK or some other country, but but Saskatchewan is is a large province. It's probably similar to Alberta in size. I think Saskatchewan's about six hundred fifty thousand uh, square kilometers. Um, uh, there's about 2,000 cops in that entire province, 650,000 square kilometers. The Scottish police uh, police an area the size of it's it's 80,000 square kilometers. So you could fit like a bunch of Scotlands in in the province of Saskatchewan or the province of Alberta. Uh, they've got 12,000 police mm. officers policing uh, that country, that size of country. So, you know, people want to criticize the police because, you know, we're not in every community or we're not doing this, we're not doing that. But again, and going back to what I said before, then you need to have a more thoughtful conversation about it. Because if if, if we want the police to be more involved and more engaged, then you got to build the capacity to be able to meet the demand. And that's, we're not doing that in this country right now. We're not doing that as a country. We're not doing that in, in different jurisdictions. And so tying back to your recruiting retention uh, comment. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're losing people because they're retiring or they're leaving the profession altogether because they can't, you know, they've had enough, too much trauma, too much criticism. But we're also having a, a tough time bringing new people in uh, to replace them, never mind trying to meet, you know, the ever-growing demand. And it's not a sustainable model. It, you know, it's, it's just not going to work. Yeah. So um, one thing, um, I just wanted to touch on, we're kind of coming up on an hour, so I said keep you about an hour, um, was just what do you see as the future of policing? Um, are there any sort of changes coming that you know of or things that you're really working toward, whether it's you yourself or through the CPA? What's uh, kind of on the horizon for policing? I think policing, um, you know, it's, it's going to continue to be a challenging environment. Uh, for the foreseeable future, I, I think, um, you know, one area that I didn't touch on that uh, we're focused on and I'm going to continue to be focused on, I really think we need to have a look at how, and I alluded to it earlier, you know, uh, 
leadership in policing? How are we how are we developing people for those leadership positions? And and how are we deciding um, how to pick those people? So I think we need to move away from what I think has been our model historically, where we focus almost exclusively on you know competencies mm-hmm. and and move to a, a model that focuses more on character, like. Are the people that we're putting in leadership positions, do they have the right character? Are they, you know, do they have the right kind of values? Because I think that in in, in the current environment that is so challenging, uh, we need to have, it's going to become more and more important that we have the right people in those leadership positions because they're, you know, it's a daunting challenge. And if, if, if you don't have the right, so competencies are important, but if you don't have the right, kind of character that can meet these challenges. And I, I think, you know, it's, it's only going to get worse. Yeah. But I think we're, we're, we're going to be in for a couple of, you know, more tough years in terms of resources, in terms of addressing these issues. On the other hand, you know, you know, there are conversations that are happening around some of these things and we're going to continue to push, um, to, 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 to change, you know the the current narrative and and attitude we're seeing from um, our, our our governance authorities, our funding authorities, and 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 our our elected officials who are responsible for policing in each of our provinces to move to a model that that's a bit more sustainable. Because, like I said, the current model is not. Now, having said that, I think what's also sadly uh, going to help us uh, move in a more positive direction is. Look, we don't have enough capacity. The demands are increasing, so you're starting to see a lot more symptoms um, of that in our communities. More violent crime, more um, public uh, disorder issues, uh, and a, and a, it ha- it's having an effect on community safety and quality of life for citizens in our communities. And it doesn't matter whether you live in a city or or a smaller. Um, town or, or village, I think, you know, it used to be that a lot of our social disorder issues were more obvious in cities and less so in smaller communities, but that's changed. I think, you know, if you travel around most provinces, you can go to a big city and see, you know, issues related to mental health and substance use and people with housing challenges, but you can find those same things in smaller towns as well. Um, so, so I think that's going to uh, put some pressure on, on, on our people in leadership positions to do something about it. And, and I think ultimately that'll help us uh, do it. And there's a lot more awareness around the whole mental health wellness piece, mm-hmm. uh, which is a good thing about progress. But now we've got to start to see, you know, some of the changes uh, being implemented to promote, um, you know, to address issues like fatigue in our organizations, which undermine mental health and wellness and to promote, you know, um, uh, some positive changes uh, so that our people are well, so that, you know, you can survive a 25 or 30 year career and come out at the end intact. Instead of our current model, which I often describe as, you know, we find really, uh, re- you know, great uh, new recruits that are physically and mentally very well when we bring them in. And then we spend the next 25 or 30 years doing our best to break them. Yeah. So that- their career at the end, they're they're a mess. I like to see us move to a model where, you know, we we create the kind of supports and capacity to support their wellness throughout their career, give them lots of good tools uh, to make them resilient, so that when people do finish their policing career, they're still you know they're healthy, they're happy uh, in their personal lives, and they can go on to have you know productive retirement, which is not always the case. No. Yeah. Well, or you, if you retire, you go into a, a secondary field that still touches on policing. Maybe you have more of a, a follow-up impact in that respect. But um, yeah, so we're kind of at the end of our time. I just want to say thanks for coming on. Is there, uh, uh, what's the best way, I guess, that people can follow your efforts or the CPA? Uh, so, you know, we, we actually have... Um, uh, quite a significant presence on uh, Facebook. I didn't touch on that at all, but we're trying to uh, build uh, a bit of a following um, uh, and 
so we can push out some messages and try and influence some of this narrative that we've been talking about. So you can follow us on Facebook. Certainly follow me on Twitter. Uh, we have a website, uh, uh, www.tpa-act.ca. And the Facebook and Twitter are linked to that website. Uh, and of course, uh, you know, you can always reach out directly and always happy to respond to uh, members that contact us directly if they're looking to see what we're doing or want some information. Uh, one, of, one of the key functions of the CPA nationally is to promote, you know, a, a good network among our association organizations and, and so, that, so that they can share information with each other and so that they can, um, you know, learn from each other and, 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 and use each other's experiences to respond to local issues. Yeah, and I'll, I'll put up the links uh, on the podcast description for the episode. So uh, I want to thank you for coming on and taking the time to talk with us. If you can just hang on offline, I'm just going to stop the recording. Sure. Yeah, you're welcome and happy to do it anytime. Great.